I think there's so many facets that life can improve if you see it as a game. Like just one simple thing is just attitude mentality, right? Some people think, why do you have so many obstacles in my life, right? So much bad luck and they kind of give up. But if you look at a game, you know, a game is really boring if there's no obstacles or resistance or bad guys that are going against, right? If a game is like you just keep going forward, 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 forward smoothly and you beat the game, like no one wants to play that game, right? It's silly. And so they have to introduce like pits and enemies and you have to learn to overcome them. And so in a game, every obstacle is actually an opportunity to score more points and people like tackle them with, with a strong attitude. And I think in life, a lot of the same people, when they face any obstacles, any setbacks, they're just like, oh, my life sucks. I don't, I'm not going to try anymore. Like even with a game of golf, right? If golf was just about getting to the goal, then it's kind of boring. You just pick up the ball, walk up to the hole and put it in. But no one would want to play that. So they said, no, 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 we need to add a lot of difficulty and, and obstacles. Or we need to stand up far away, hit it with a weird stick. There needs to be little sand puddles and ponds to make it more frustrating. And now it's a fun game. So I think just number one, just having a game like mentality. This is like everything you face in life is an opportunity to, to learn, grow, score high. Even just that one thing, I think will change a lot of people's lives. I like that. Learn, grow, and score high. That's awesome. Sounds <laughs> like a tattoo. Hello, it's Curdy D, and welcome back. If this is your first time listening, then I am so glad you found us. This week, I'm super excited to share my conversation with my friend Yukai Chow, founder at the Octolysis Group, one of the world's leading consulting and design firms on gamification and behavioral design. Yukai has one of the most fascinating stories of almost anybody I've heard of. He was born in Taiwan, where he lived until he was five, and the family moved to the States to support his father's work as a Taiwanese diplomat. He is an autodidact. He is a master of so many different things, a chess, and it goes on and on. And in this story, we unpack Yukai's Octolysis framework, which is now the leading gamification framework in the tech sector. We unpack what the framework is, how he developed it, and how it has helped improve over 1 billion user experiences across the world. And he's been working with companies such as Google, Lego, IDEO, Tesla, Uber, Volkswagen, Porsche, HTC, Microsoft, and many more in creating behavioral change among their customers and employees. And we unpack this sort of insight and unlock on how he came up with the framework, which is fascinating, getting ton of traction in academia too, Stanford, Yale, so forth. So this show has a lot to offer to anyone interested in product, design, sales, marketing, and growing a community or ecosystem. At the end of the show, we share a list of resources mentioned on today's episode. Please do sign up for my newsletter at curdyd.com if you'd like updates when the show goes live, plus special content reserved for email subscribers. Very big special thank you to Hunt Club for sponsoring the show. Hunt Club is a new category of recruiting firm helping the next generation of category creators find the best talent. Go to huntclub.com to learn more. So on to today's show. Here's Yukai. Hey, everyone. Glad to be here. Yukai, it's so nice to see you, my man. It's been a while and I've been looking forward to this conversation. Where are you today in the world? Yeah, I'm in uh, Taiwan right now. I've been working out of San Francisco for 10 plus years and due to COVID, I relocated Taiwan in March of last year. So I've been pretty happy here. 
And is that home for you? Kind of. I was born in Taiwan and I was little. I lived here for five years. So have some relatives and, and people I still remember. But I think the U.S. and specifically California is my core home. Yeah, we'll definitely want to double click into that. I know you studied at UCLA and there's, there's some really fun to talk about. In Taiwan, I hear it's just a beautiful place. It's sort of a, the, is it fair to say it's the best of Japan and China kind of in one, in one, uh, one combo? Well, I wouldn't say best just from a modesty standpoint, but I'd say it's a combination. If you've never been to Taiwan, it's a combination of probably Hong Kong and, and Japan. Hong Kong because it retains the pre-communist Chinese culture, all those things. And it was ruled by Japan for, I think, 50 years. And so a lot of the Japanese culture were brought into Taiwan. So if, you know, some people feel like Hong Kong is a lot of fun, but sometimes it's a little bit too chaotic. And some people think Japan is like neat and orderly but it's a bit too uptight in many scenarios. Taiwan is like the, I guess, the hybrid, the, the good balance. Yeah. Well, I want to dig in a little bit more. Doing a little research, I kind of dug in a little bit about history of Taiwan, and it's been on a lot of people's minds lately with everything <laughs> that's happening in China. So, Yeah. Everyone says it's the most likely to be the trigger of World War III. Yeah, let's hope that's not the case. But I, I hear that. That's exactly what, I was, what I've been hearing. Yeah, yeah, I think it's like the Poland of World War I, I believe. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there for sure. And we'll definitely dig deeper into Taiwan throughout our conversation in that context. It's a really important discussion. So let's press rewind. You studied at UCLA. What was your focus there? And what were some insights that you learned that have been timeless, stuck with you or propelled you to where you are now? Yeah, that's very interesting. So I went to UCLA um, and I studied international economics because I was interested in business and they don't have a business major for undergrad. So econ was the closest thing. But I did start my first company when I was first year in college. I actually thought that was a fun game to play. So in, in high school, I had the epiphany of converting my whole life into a game. And then all the rules of playing a game applies, learning, figuring out what role you're playing in the game, right? If you're a mage or a warrior, uh, what are the skills you need to acquire, experience allies, what are the quests? So in first year in college at UCLA, I started my first business and I felt that was way more like a game than, than school, right? It's you have your objective, you have your goals, you have your current resources, and then you have obstacles in the middle. And it's to figure out how to use your current resource to overcome the obstacles and get to your goal. And, you know, that honestly is like, any, like a game and like most people's jobs, right? Most people's work is like memorizing a bunch of information and regurgitating on a piece of paper. So school is kind of boring in that sense. So started running companies, but I'll say a few classes were very, very impactful for me. Uh, Psych 10, so psychology. That was the only class I read the book from cover to cover and I got an A plus. But at the time I thought psychology, if I majored in it, I'd have to you know, be a psychologist, become a PhD and, you know, ask people how they feel all the time. And again, I was interested in business, so I, I didn't do that. That obviously impact a lot about my work today, which is about behavioral design and gamification. I think econ did make an impact in the sense that it allowed me to create visual models and tools with abstract concepts. Today, I'm most famous for creating this thing called Octalysis Framework. I and mean, I've made probably 28 models or frameworks. My life goal is 100 for fun, but I think you can help with that. And then interestingly, some philosophy classes at UCLA, history of social thought, 18 years later after I graduated, still be very impactful. I am curious about the, the idea of a game because at the end of the day, it feels like it's such a great metaphor for 
I don't know if a successful life is the right word, but maybe words around an activated life or an actualized life. It's sort of realizing that we can make it a game and we can observe the uh, environment and that there are these sort of fundamental game-like components or characteristics. And that's sort of what you're the master at. Yeah, I think there's so many facets that life can improve if you see it as a game. Like just one simple thing is just attitude mentality, right? Some people think, why do I have so many obstacles in my life, right? So, so much bad luck and they kind of give up. But if you look at a game, you know, a game is really boring if there's no obstacles or resistance or bad guys that are going against you, right? If a game is like you just keep going forward, 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 forward smoothly and you beat the game, like no one wants to play that game, right? It's silly. And so they have to introduce like pits and enemies and you have to learn to overcome them. And so in a game, every obstacle is actually an opportunity to score more points and people like tackle them with, with a strong attitude. And I think in life, a lot of the same people, when they face any obstacles, any setbacks, they're just like, oh, my life sucks. I don't, I'm not going to try anymore. Like even with a game of golf, right? If golf was just about getting to the goal, then it's kind of boring. You just pick up the ball, walk up to the hole and put it in. But no one would want to play that. So they said, no, 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 we need to add a lot of difficulty and, and obstacles. Or we need to stand it far away, hit it with a weird stick. There needs to be little sand puddles and ponds to make it more frustrating. And now it's a fun game. So I think just number one, just having a game-like mentality, it's like everything you face in life is an opportunity to, to learn, grow, score high. I think even just that one thing, I think will change a lot of people's lives. I like that. Learn, grow, and score high. That's awesome. Sounds like a tattoo. So what, one of the things that I'm really obsessed with and fascinated with is, is this concept of a transformation from state A to state B. Mm-hmm. And what was that journey for you? What was it about these ideas of games that, that enraptured or captured your imagination? And, and when did that light bulb go, start going off for you? Yeah, I think that biggest transformation, that epiphany, was in high school that I mentioned, which is when I discovered, I didn't call it this at that time, but gamification by in general. So in high school, I was a heavy gamer, and at the time I was playing this game Diablo 2, and I you know put in thousands of hours to make my uh, character strong, get gear, get gold, and all that stuff. And then at one point, my friends started quitting the game and moving to the next game. And I quit too. So I was in that transition between quitting one game and finding another game. And I just felt extremely empty. Like, you know, all those thousands of hours just became nothing. And my characters are strong, but, you know, I'm in the same place in life. So I just thought, can there be a game where everyone is playing and they can't just suddenly just quit and move on? And I just thought, hey, now I guess that's the game of life. You know, we're all playing this game. Most people, especially at that age, right, students, they don't realize they're playing this game. So they're idling in town just walking back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, not doing anything. It's like, well, if I'm playing this game, of course I need to go out out of town, kill monsters, get experience, you know, acquire skills early. And I thought, hey, if I started doing this earlier, when my peers are still just hanging out in town one day, maybe when they graduate college, they're like, hey, I need to, I'm playing this game. I need to go out and level up. At that time, I might be like level 27 or whatever, and that will give me an edge to maybe one day become the strongest player on my quote-unquote server. So I think that epiphany of seeing everything in my life as a game was the most transformative. And, and this is big, even for school, because in school, what I used to do is I did the bare minimum to achieve my acceptable grade, which is an A because of family reasons, but you know, it's like 90%. I try to get exactly 90%. Sometimes I drop to 89, drops to a B. That is really bad. But I try to get the bare minimum effort to achieve 
my extrinsic results and then I go play games. But when I see our life as a game, it wouldn't make sense to just do the bare minimum and leave, right? You want to do the best you can. So at that time, I became very good at everything I did. I became number two in my state for chess. I wrote string quartet music. I was in state competition for violin. I did state competition for swimming, forensics, speech and debate, uh, a variety of things, just a bunch of things. I just saw that as how I'm growing my own character because my grades before this is 11th grade were mediocre, but that stuff allowed me to get into UCLA. And then, as I mentioned, then the next game I saw was that was relevant was starting my own company. How accessible is that to anybody else? Like, is there something special and unique about you that allowed you to unlock that? Or is this something that uh, you can teach anyone or anyone can learn? I think this is the thing with mentality shifts. It's so, so easy yet so hard because it's easy because you just switch right you switch how you think how you how you think about things uh so it's it's almost if you can do it, it's almost effortless but it's so hard because it feels so abstract a lot of people don't know wh where's the lever to pull on and because my father's a diplomat for the taiwanese government i grew up in south africa and taiwan and in kansas california and so when I was growing up, my life has constantly been trying to adapt and adjust to new environments, trying to fit in and being behind in school, trying to catch up. And I think that helps with my empathetic abilities. I'm always trying to figure out what people here are thinking and you know how they feel and how do I fit in? How do they accept me? Uh, so I think all this builds up to who I am today. It was not fun growing up uh, with that. But I think that allowed me to be more adaptive in my thinking and the way I do things. So some people grew up in the same neighborhood and, and especially if they're talented, they're smart, everything comes so easy. And so the moment, let's say when they create a company and they face something hard, they give up pretty quickly and it's hard to shift mentality because they feel like, you know, that's how the world works, right? When you move to country to country, you realize, hey, what's like socially polite and expected in one country is offensive in another. And you realize, oh, these are all variables. These are all up to change human systems. And that's when you can, I think, think the most of. Absolutely. So my, my work has inspired a lot of people to try to change their life into games and uh, change their mentality, all that stuff. But I don't know if anyone has done it so thoroughly as I have. The, I love the idea of leverage It's something I'm always looking for. Like even doing this content podcast is a form of leverage, right? Because I'm able to learn with you and the audience can learn along and hopefully it pays dividends down the road. So I, I love the idea of this abstraction to the framework. So like, Walk us through your framework for how you think about games and then how many different kind of game formats or, or schemas are there? Okay. So this goes back to the framework that I'm most known for called the Octalysis framework. It's well known enough to the point that I, my, I have two companies all have an Octalysis group, my consulting design company, and then Octalysis Prime, my gamified education platform. And so it's called the Octalysis because it's a combination between the word octagon and analysis. And what it does, it breaks down all human motivation into eight core drives. So everything we do is based on one or more of these eight core drives. And if none of these eight are there, there's zero motivation. No behavior happens. And uh, skipping a lot of details, not covering those what those eight core drives are, uh, it's, on, it's grabbed on the octagon because there's all these tendencies. So the top of the octagon, those are what we call white hat motivation core drives makes people feel powerful in control they feel good but there's no sense of urgency so people procrastinate the bottom are called black hat motivation core drives what are, what are the what four white hats those three would be epic meaning and calling 
doing something because you feel like it's something bigger than yourself, like changing the world or pursuing your faith. Core drive two is development accomplishment, which is the feeling of progression, leveling up, achieving mastery. Uh, core drive three is empowerment of creativity and feedback, which is the idea of strategy, self-expression, autonomy. And then we have the black hat core drives, and those make people feel urgent, obsessed, even addicted. But in the long run, leaves a bad taste in their mouths if that was the only motivator because people feel like they're not in control of their own behavior. And those would be core drive eight, loss and avoidance. You know, you're avoiding pain or loss or you know, you're know you afraid of something. Core drive seven is unpredictable in curiosity. Basically, because we don't know what's going to happen next, we're always thinking about it. So that's more like the gambling kind of addiction or, you know, Netflix give you these cliffhangers. So you want to go to bed at 10 p.m. and you stay up to four in the morning. Core drive six is scarcity and patience, which is you want something simply because you can't have it or it's very difficult to obtain, like exclusive programs or Facebook says we only accept Harvard students or Clubhouse says you only get like three invites, whatnot. And so... Then there's the left and right of that octagon. So the left side, I, I call them left brain core drives. Uh, not, it doesn't necessarily mean it's geographical on the left versus the right, but the left brain core drives is deals with our logical brain versus the right brain core drives on the right of the octagon is our emotional brain. And the left brain core drives deal with extrinsic motivation, things you do for a reward, a purpose, or a goal, but you don't necessarily enjoy the activity itself. So once you obtain the reward, you hit your goals, you get used to the reward, uh, you stop doing the behavior. Uh, the right brain core drives are intrinsic motivation, things you just enjoy doing to the point that you're even willing to spend money to experience it. And even if you lost all your progress the next day, you would still want to do that activity today because that's how we measure our quality of lives, You know how much time we spend on uh, things that we just enjoy. So that's like the super... Highlight level of the framework, I teach this framework at places like Stanford, Yale, Oxford, Tesla, IDEO, Google Lego, BCG. And if you go to Google Scholar and you search with Octalysis, I think you'll see about 1,500 PhD thesis academic journals about how the, this framework applies to, I don't know, health management or factory quality assurance or all that stuff. So very, very blessed on being able to unearth this framework and teach people this. And so when I think about a game, like every game, every activity, even our conversation, I can apply that the A-Core drives. As long as there's human activity, these A-Cores apply. And so when you ask about formats of games, I think of it in this, this octagon too. Some games are purely extrinsic. They let you grind, grind, grind. And do, the activities are kind of boring, monotonous, but you get rewards afterwards. Scam games are like a lot of fun, use creativity, but they're, you know, they're, they're small instances of three-minute games, and it always starts all over. So there's no extrinsic gain from it. And some games make you form a white hat. You know, you feel inspired, you feel good like chess. You can play it for, for 40 years without any urgency. You can quit for a while and play for a while. Some games like Farmville uh, are more black hat. You, you feel like you have to log in, you know, 12 times a day, but then after five months you burn out and you don't want to play anymore. So, so I kind of see the world with this. People, people who learn the framework, depending on how kind they are, their language. Some people say it's like a curse. Some people say it's like being unplugged from the matrix. Like all you see is green code everywhere now. Like literally every email, every banner ad or whatnot I see. I see those core drives, so I, I use this on an hourly basis in my whole life. Where did you get the uh, insight and the light bulb moment for this framework? And why, why has it gotten so much traction from academia? And there's a few moments of inspiration that became this framework. So I think, oh, and this is interesting because you, you're asking some questions that people don't ask, you know, like the origin of things and, you know, my like humble beginnings that I rarely talk about because it's the content that's interesting to people. But I remember I was in college and there are two instances that maybe even think about doing something like this, which was I was in a business fraternity called Delta Sigma Pi. 
And there was alumni who was kind of legendary, who was very successful in the uh, managed consulting world. And he comes back to give back and he helps brothers in the fraternity some advice on how to do case interviews. And we were talking about it and he suddenly said, okay, so if you can do this, draw this two by two, you know, two by two, and it's like kind of like a BCG matrix you're familiar, but just another type. And he says, you do this, you show them this and you blow the interviewers uh, like mind away. I'm like, whoa, this is like really easy. How do you blow someone's mind away with this? And then that was one moment, right? Another moment, I went to this professional event. And again, I was a college student and everyone else, you know, twice, thrice my age. And I just remember I walked by two guys talking about something. They're in their 40s and they were showing some kind of framework or model. I don't remember what it is, but they were explaining like, oh, if you're blah, 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 you're in this quadrant and you're this. But if you're blah, 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 and you're in this quadrant, you're this. And the guy's like, oh, wow. That's that's uh, that's brilliant. Did you create this? He's like, oh no, I wish. It's this other genius that created. It. I'm looking at it, it's like, again, this is really simple and basic. Why are they so impressed? And and those are the moments you want to catch in life. It's like, oh, this is something that I have a talent in. It's easy for me, but other people think it's hard and and difficult, and they're impressed by it. So so then I think that planted the seed that hey, maybe I should come up with something useful and interesting as a uh, visual model and framework to help figure out things in life. So I think in one sit down, I, I drew this octagon and I call it the octalysis. But at the time, it's a different use case. It's to analyze the business because I was running my, my business, right? So the eight sides had represents different things, but there's all this, still this pattern about the top are more like internal factors that you can control. Bottom are external factors like competition or market that you can't control. And the right side are soft factors like the people marketing and, uh, and HR. The left side are like hard things like IT and IP, things like that. Sat there for a while. Then I think in 2012, uh, that's when I stepped down as being the CEO of my last startup, Reward Me, which also had some painful lessons. And I got married. And that's when I started thinking about a lot of the games I'm playing and what motivates people. And I was able to distill it down to eight drives. And that was like, I was just curious, hey, there's eight components and it seems to cover everything, like every game with that work on this octagon that I created many years ago. And I was again, very lucky and blessed that it just turned out to be quite strong. And even the corners. So, you know, a framework is good when the corners are strong. So for instance, the core drive seven, unpredictability and curiosity, right? That's on the right bottom which means it's right brain black hat, like intrinsic. And then this is my example, right? Netflix, you binge watch it four in the morning. It's intrinsic, your brain enjoys it, but it's black hat, you feel out of control. So, but if you go on the left top, that's the core drive to development accomplishment. And it's white hat, you feel good as long as you're making progress and achieving things. But the activity itself is may not be enjoyable. So it's extrinsic left brain. You do it for the goal, not the experience. So once you hit your goals or uh, you, you you feel like you plateaued, you're not improving anymore, you're not going to do the activity anymore, right? It's purely extrinsic. And this is the problem a lot of running apps. You know, it's just like at the beginning, it feels like you have progress. But once you plateau, people stop. And so the corners are even solid. And then I published this on my blog, yukaichiao.com. And within a year, it got picked up really quickly. You know, it was translated organically into 16 different languages. So on Twitter, I'll see this conference in Russia. And on the big screen, there's my octalysis from, I don't understand any of the words because it's Russia, but it's like, it's, and I was like, oh, but that's the octalysis. And that's when I started getting invitations to, you know, speak at different places, teach the framework, consult, wrote a book about it. I wrote a book because for two years, people asked me, when is my book coming out? And I thought, 
maybe I should start writing a book. So, you know, I didn't write a book because it's like, oh, I need to establish myself as an expert or anything. It's just I was interested in the topic and people pushed me to publish a book. Yeah. And so whether why academia accepted so much, that was not a goal of mine, by the way. I created as a tool to just be useful to solve problems. But I think academia cares about it because uh, I've heard from some people, some PhDs in psychology that it answered some things that the psychology world couldn't explain for decades. And in many ways, it made sense of uh, a lot of people's theories and connected their work together. So I think from a theoretical literature standpoint, I think it's really strong and solid, helps us understand the human mind more. And I think from an application standpoint, it's very useful. It creates value. So that's why I think it stands as strong as it is today. It's interesting, too, that it has sort of a duality to it where and there's a paradox and a, and a balance. It seems that, like, for example, even in life that we want, we want novelty and uncertainty, but we also want certainty, right? If it's too certain and stable, we get bored. And if it's too uncertain, it's chaotic. But we want, it's, that's the spice of life. But And a good designer would balance that at the right time, at the right moment. So you feel that uncertainty when you need it and you feel that stability when you need it. What criticism or pushback or, or, or where does the model break down? Surprising to me, there isn't a, a ton of real criticism and it's been standing pretty bulletproof at this moment. And that's and who knows, maybe tomorrow something some someone will break it apart. But I'd say I think the thing that concerns people the most is the morality aspect of it. You know, if you have the power to affect behavior to increase engagement or motivate people towards any desired behavior, where do you draw the line on what you should do and what you shouldn't do and if it can fall into the wrong hands? So for instance, I have turned down many engagements from, let's say, you know, online poker companies and, you know, they tell me, you know, that their problem is people put in money at the beginning, but on day one, they lose everything. And they want me to help them figure out how to get people to keep putting back more money and lose money happily. And it just felt a little dirty for me to do that. And uh, other times, like we've turned down, you know, let's say tobacco or alcohol companies. It's not that we judge people's lifestyles, but it's just that, hey, if we were super successful and the world was more addicted to these things, it's just not the impact we want to see. I have some principles that I can lay out, but but generally, yeah, that's the concern people have, especially I think when I, you know, 2012, when it first started, it was just a theoretical question. But now it's becoming more and more real, right? Say, oh, Facebook, because all the data they have, they know what you want to click on. They'll serve you this, take you there, send you here. And what's the moral guideline or even compliance that needs to be applied to something like this? Yeah, it's just some like digital magic powers we're talking about. I mean, I still find myself all the time just reaching for my phone just out of habit, you know, going to Instagram or whatever. Yeah, that's the slot machine mechanic. Every time you look at it, it's like pulling a slot machine to see if there's something exciting. If not, you pull again. And so when you feel bored, you you play the slot machine game, which is checking your phone on Instagram. Because again, that's the unpredictability and curiosity core drive. Your brain enjoys it, but sometimes you feel like you're not in full control of you would rather just focus on your work or or your conversation, right? But you just kept being pulled there. So when I do projects, I try to focus on things that's helping people like, oh, people are 
more into working out, exercising. Like we've saved lives, we worked on, you know, safety in like the largest steel manufacturer in the world, driving safety for insurance companies and getting people to exercise. Education is a big thing, finance, money management. So we try to focus on the things that people know they should do more in their lives, but they just can't get themselves to do it because there's all these other distractions. Yeah, I think that's a great segue into to your professional work. So you were formerly the head of creative labs and digital commerce for HTC. That's one of the things you've worked on many, many more things. What are a few other things just to give the audience sort of a little context about some of the work you've done? And I, I'd love to maybe dig in or click into some of the projects that either you are really proud of or grateful for that were just sort of provocative and really had a breakthrough. Yeah, I think I wear many hats as a professional. So maybe going through how I started wearing these hats would provide the best organization. So in 2004, five, I started my first business. So I think my first professional title is entrepreneur. And I remember my first real tech startup was a, a virtual world. The, the ambition at least was to be like the second life plus LinkedIn, where second life is more like a MySpace. I felt it's fun, but sometimes a little messy. And I saw there's a space to be LinkedIn of the virtual worlds, which is more professional, use it to, to BD and do uh, networking, connect with others, learn from each other, stuff like that. But of course, that concept was a bit too ambitious for college students with with no credibility. And so we did other things, this real-life RPG platform to help people see career development as a game. That one I, at the time was rated on Mashable as a top 10 social network for Gen Ys. What was that game called? It was called FD Career. FD stands for Future Delivery. It's a name that I just really liked when I was younger. It's like delivering a future to you. And I think the way it rolls off the top, future delivery, I feel like it, it has this sense of coolness to it. So I had a lot of projects that were all started with FD. And actually, my Gmail to today is still, that's ah, okay, fdlinked at gmail.com. People can email me, but I, I only see less than 20% of my emails. Yeah. And then, oh, the 2008 financial crisis happened. FD Career's business model was to help companies recruit talent more effectively through gaming also. So that revenue model was broken. So afterwards, I would pivot. And then usually three, four years later, what I was doing before became like the hot topic and a bunch of startups coming and getting well-funded. But I would go to the VC and with my new concept and they'll say like, oh yeah, your last thing was actually really on point, but this thing you're doing is ridiculous. Like it's crazy. So I think that happens quite a bit. So it's like, I just think further in the future in this, maybe. And I was lucky because all the things I was doing surrounded a central point called gamification. They were all trying to apply gaming to some kind, like we did virology, which is social media rank, basically a leaderboard for how people can become influencers online. We did that in 2007 to eight. Our business model was to get social media marketers to easily find the top influencers in you know fashion, whatnot, and, and get in touch with them. So at the time, right, Social media marketing was completely super early stage. Like people thought having a Facebook page or Twitter page was social media marketing. And so uh, it was quite early. And then later on, as we know, something, you know, things like cloud or all, all those things became useful utilities for the ecosystem. But we pivoted again, but then did something called Reward Me, which is a restaurant loyalty program. And that one also had some scale. We raised money. We had clear case studies to show that our conversion metrics, our engagement metrics were, I think, 16 times stronger than our, our well-funded competitors. And then that all goes to 2012, where 
you know, so a few bad things happened. We can go through those in detail. Basically, I stepped down as CEO of RewardMe and got married. And I, like I said, I published Octalysis Framework. And, and at that point, I started blogging more so than I, I was always a blogger. So I guess I blogged all, all the time. Then I became a consultant and designer because people hired me to consult and design solutions for them. That's my other hat. And then I became a book author and I'm a speaker. And then I launched another startup, which is my gamified education platform. I'm now working on a new metaverse concept that involves NFTs. We're launching a new project called GuideBuff, helping uh, guide writers monetize their content. And then in the middle, I have some titles, some hats that I've worn that are kind of interesting just because I think there's a handful of hundred millions and billionaires who, who read my book would like it and they want me to help them. And so for instance, when one of the co-founders Ethereum, Anthony Diorio, he brought me in as a consultant, as a contracting person to help his company. He gave me a fancy title of chief experience officer. So that's my first step into the crypto blockchain space and I worked on this wallet called Jack's Liberty. And then for HTC, similarly, I came back to Taiwan and the CEO founder of HTC, you know, likes my work and brought me in. And again, I was a consultant, right? But she put three departments under me and a hundred people reporting to me. And so I was head of creative labs, digital commerce, and I was in charge of North American marketing. Like the, I was the head of North American marketing was reporting to me. And it seemed like if I wanted to pursue that more, I could and that was already a, a pretty high position in the organization. And it seemed like it was communicating to me that I could take it further in the organization if I wanted to commit to that only. But I liked my freedom and doing this Octalysis stuff. So I kind of took a step back and said, actually, I don't want to manage all these people and lead all these innovation products. It's actually really interesting, but I think the management part is is the part I didn't like to do so much. So I'm mostly focused on social media connecting, being an ambassador and an evangelist for HTC and Vive. Well, then that's probably a great segue into Octolysis. You guys are running it as a innovative design shop, digital design, experiential. Like, what do you call the label of the agency or like, what's the category? Yeah, I think we're a consulting design company. I think if you were to put it in the right bucket, I'd say the aspiration is to be similar to an IDEO. Great. Then it's, it's super niche with IDEO, with the gamification expertise. And the gamification extends into like again, behavioral design in general. So clients would come to us and they'll just specifically say, we want X type of people to do more Y type of activity and we can design the experience. Sometimes everyone has different get definition of gamification. So we have a very broad one. So sometimes it looks like game, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it's just an experience that people feel happy when they use it. So, and as long as we create value, we don't really care what, you know, this, about the semantics. And, and we really focus on quality over quantity. At the beginning it was just me, but then as time went by, you know, there's more and more projects and I need to bring more people. And luckily I had a lot of people who read my book, who study my work for years. So now I think we're about 12 to 14 consultants and designers. I mean, we have other like accounting and IT and all that stuff. But the way we recruit is a very slow process. We would host a design competition and we'd say, hey, how would you improve eBay? You have a month and a half to 
figure it out on your own time, night and weekends. And then people send us like 30 to 50 pages of design analysis, you know, wireframes, spreadsheets. And then we interview the, the, the finalists and we hire like one person because I think it's always a flawed way to say, hey, we want to decide who we're going to work with for the next two to five years and represent our brand. Our brand is our most important asset, our reputation. We all work remotely even before COVID. So there's people who, when they first join a company, they're excited and they work hard for three, five months. And then they're like, oh, the bed is comfortable. This is nice. And they're just thinking, oh, tomorrow there's a client meeting. So let's see what I need to do today to like get away and have something to report, right? It just becomes very passive. So we want to make sure everyone will bring in you know, has high skill and ability in the Octalysis framework. And also they're very self-driven. We don't have to do any type of police. We like to empower people and, and see what they can do. I love it. So you essentially gamified the uh, interview process and you kind of create a challenge, a project, and you kind of get a, a sense of uh, their work product and kind of self-starter or, or self-discipline. I love that. And then it sounds like you guys are punching well above your weight class. So that's great. I think the when we were talking a couple of weeks ago, you were talking about some of the new stuff that you're getting into with blockchain and the metaverse. And I couldn't think of a you know more exciting and timely environment or context for you to kind of flex on all that you've learned. Whatever you're comfortable and able to share, because I know some of this stuff is still work in progress, what what it is that you're working on, and then your sense of the emerging future and, and also like your sense of the velocity, like how, how fast do you think this is going to change and what does the future look like? Yeah, I think the metaphor is ex especially exciting because it's the overlap of all the topics I'm interested in, right? Gamification, blockchain, VR, cryptocurrency, and NFTs, like all those things intersect at the metaverse. And like I said, the first startup I created is a virtual world, right? I, you know, this is back in 2005. In my head, I already felt, felt like there should be a world that is meaningful and is impactful. And also what's interesting is that the key thing about the metaverse, there's a lot of places to learn about the metaverse, is that things are persistent. They have meaning. A lot of things in metaverse is in the gaming space. And it's like, well, the, the things you earn in a game won't just disappear, right? You, you can take these angel wings and take it to another game with, your, with the same avatar and you can take it to another website and let's say you could even uh, go to a restaurant and they and you maybe through your your watch or your AR glasses and they can detect like oh you you have these exclusive angel wings in in the metaverse so in your inventory so you're a VIP please you know come in for free like how all these things interconnect to each other is very very exciting remember when i first started everything in 2003 what gave me that epiphany was just like oh i spent so many hours in a game and everything would be gone and lost forever so the metaverse actually solves that issue uh, which is like everything you do will persist and maintain and be relevant in other games you play in other places you go. It's a very exciting thing. I think there needs to be a lot of good design involved in the metaverse to make sure it's uh, positive and constructive. And you see a lot of dystopian shows right on Netflix and all these places about how things could go wrong. So there's all these things on Black Mirror or you know, Ready Player One. And Ready Player One, it's funny, the creator of their metaverse, Oasis, is a benevolent, right? He's benevolent, but, you know, he's a little... I guess, playful, childlike. So he's like, hey, whoever's going to be the next, you know, trillionaire is going to be the people who can like play all these games and solve my puzzle and understand my childhood like pains. Right. And so technically 
with someone that much power shouldn't create all these rules based on his own personal muses. But at least his, again, benevolent. His, he doesn't have any ill intentions. But of course, it could all fall into the wrong hands or just unintentionally be designed in a way that's just destructive in behavior, right? And I think data-driven design actually leads to a lot of those destructive designs, unfortunately, because we talk about black hat motivation creates urgency. So if you're always too focused on the data and see what works and keeps doing more of that, it's the experience is always going to be more black hat. Like people are sucked into it. They do a lot of it and they feel burned out. They hate it. Yeah. So I think the metaverse is really exciting and interesting. And the project I'm working on called MetaBlocks with the X at the end. And again, uh, as you mentioned, it's a little bit too early to share. But I think part of it is to understand, like, if you look at the NFT world, it's like, oh, why are these NFTs worth so much money? Right. And there's a few components. You can bring it back to the octalysis. You know, first of all, NFT creates that scarcity. That's core drive six scarcity and patience like, oh, there's a limited amount of this thing. But that scarcity, there's some of this virtual, like, hey, the, the company can just pump up another 10,000 of these if they want to, 50,000 of these if they want to. So it's about how believable that scarcity is. Is the scarcity controlled by a company artificially, just like diamonds, right? The beer artificially controls the scarcity of diamonds, but they can release more. Yeah. Or Satoshi Nakamoto, 21 million Bitcoin, and that's it. Yeah. And the Bitcoin one has more believability in the sense that as long as people stick with this Bitcoin, that's the cap. They're not going to do more. But but if you say, oh, well, Bitcoin, whenever they want to, they can just raise it to 50 and 100 and it doesn't matter. Then that scarcity is less believable. My friend in Denmark, he has a really broken, rugged couch that he treasures tremendously because he tells me that it used to be Winston Churchill's couch. And so there's only one of that item, right? Now, suddenly... Winston Churchill said, yeah, now I'm going to mass produce like 100,000 of these couches, then obviously lose some of the value. Or if even if we know he can't, but obviously you, there's no more production of something like that. So, so the scarcity is one component. The second one is meaning, right? There needs to be meaning on top of that scarcity. So that's like Winston Churchill, that's meaning. That's for, for a lot of people. So all these components make NFTs valuable or not valuable. And of course, there's the social hype, the social influencer relatedness, how well they can drive the hype and you know control the release events, the drops. And I think it's important to distill what has lasting power, what has lasting meaning, and what's just like the party of the moment. And everyone's excited. And then, you know, it's just going to be abandoned a year later or two years later. And And I think Creating something that has lasting power and meaning is important. And I think identifying which ones have lasting power. I mean, some people literally, they, they know some projects are going to crash, but they, they're joining the party while it lasts, right? So it, it is like a bit like those things where the next full thing, like, oh, I'm going to buy this thing with a million dollars, these pixels, because I believe someone else is going to buy uh, from me w with 1.5 million afterwards. And, and some people willingly do that because, hey, there's a lot of you know, gains to be made while it's happening, but some of them know it probably will have to end at one point, and it's about how you play that. Where do you think this washes out? Like fast forward, I know Google had their Google Glass that was sort of a flash in the pan, but do you think something like that kind of form factor comes back or what does it look and feel like? Yeah, I think a lot of things we do in the future will be powered by augmented reality. It's kind of like just like a, almost like a game overlay on top of our real life. So you walk around and it'll tell you, hey, this restaurant has like four-star reviews and it has these dishes that you most likely would enjoy. I think it'll get more and more 
important and, and prominent as something we rely on day to day. If you think about why people are so glued on to, you know, their digital products, it's because the digital products have all these feedback mechanics, the things that give you immediate insights when you need it, it's personalized, it understands you, you go to a place you can find out anything you're curious about immediately. You're in a meeting with these AR glasses on and you're like, oh yeah, what was that thing we talked about last meeting about the, the ducks? And immediately your glasses show you because it recorded the whole conversation. It's like, oh, it shows you exactly what was talked about. You know, those would all be prominent. And I think the only thing that people are trying to balance is privacy. But there's a classic Silicon Valley kind of conceit or thesis that privacy erodes with convenience. Right. So if you continue to make it add value and I mean, that's a whole and we have all these privacy laws. I think even some new ones came down recently in the last couple of months. Yeah, it's a balance. It is a tricky balance. One of the core themes of the, the show is humanizing success. And if you're comfortable sharing, what is a challenge professionally or personally that you overcame, Yukai? And what were some of the learnings that said hurdle or challenge gave you? I think it's much easier to talk about like absolute failures because once you resolve a, a challenge, it feels easy, right? Because you resolved it and it's in the past. So I'd say probably the, the biggest failure is what happened to reward me. And that was the startup where it's a low risk or loyalty program. And, you know, we had a lot of momentum. We were kind of first in the industry of the restaurant loyalty space. And actually, right, I just read a couple of days ago, this uh, startup called Five Stars. They just exited for, I think, 327 or something million dollars. And I know they were, in a sense, inspired by what we're doing because we were friends with a founder that's no longer with their company. And, you know, he visited us and we talked about what we were doing. And later on, they, they did five stars, which is very similar in the same industry, at least. So I think we inspired some other companies to do it. So we were very early, uh, raised some money and all that stuff. And I think there are some strategic choices we made that, to this day, I don't even know which one or, or maybe one should have been correct, but it feels like it's not following good principles. So one choice we made is, all right, a lot of these companies, they're just trying to build a brand in Silicon Valley and getting VCs like them, entrepreneurs to think they're cool. They're speaking at entrepreneur events. And we thought for us to be successful, we need to be where the customers are at. And our customers are, you know, restaurants and like franchise owners. So we didn't spend a lot of energy at the startup events and all those things. We went to, you know, for instance, the, the multi-unit franchise conference in Las Vegas. And so we built a pretty strong brand name in that space. The customers recognize us. But I think because of that, even though our stats look great, we always had an issue with raising more fund. And back then, I wish I knew the Octalysis framework because that really helps with fundraising. I advise a lot of startups on that these days. It was hard to raise funding because what a lot of VCs like to do is they like to invest in companies that you know TechCrunch writes about and all their other investor friends knows about, so they can say, "Hey, you know that company you just read about? I'm part of that deal." And so we were like not a main name in that. We were just known in our customers. And even four or five years after it shut down, I'd get emails from restaurants say, hey, we did our research, reward me is the best. Can we use you? And like, ah, sorry, out of business. And then towards the end of our runway, we closed a million dollar deal with a big brand. But it will take, you know, seven months to fulfill it. At that point, a lot of VCs wanted a meeting again. 
And then they said, oh, you kind of, that's great. That's amazing. But we want to make sure this is not like a one-off. We want to see like number two or number three coming in. And that was the point where we were pretty much running out of funding. And previous investors, you know, a lot of angel investors, they were really excited about our progress. They think we're doing a great job. So they were saying, yeah, don't worry. We can bridge it to your next round. You know, we have money prepared. We really like what you're doing. It's awesome. But then a certain key member in our company, he burned out and he just decided he didn't want to do too much pressure stress. And, he, you know, he was working more than 100 hours a week for like four or five years. Like Google's been offering like 10x pay for him for years. And so he just burned out and he just decided he didn't want to do software companies anymore for the time being anyway. So that's when a lot of things fell apart. And I think the company did end, end up not making it. This sounds like a really tough decision, you know, and you held your integrity. Even if everything was successful, right? If I did things uh, like that, it was against my moral principles. Like I would be super rich and successful. I'd be in a big house, a nice TV, a nice house. And all that nice stuff will be surrounding a piece of shit. And that piece of shit is me. And I think that's not worth it. Like I need to respect myself. I need to like myself for me to enjoy my life. And well, I guess that's the lesson that you're going to be able to get success on your own terms. And you sort of got to have your metal tested and, and you sort of, the gift is, you know, yourself better now. Yeah. I, I think it's important for people to be able to respect and like themselves. I think that's worth a lot of luxury in life. And yeah. And so I think I'll still make the same choices, but I, who knows what would happen if I made a different choice. Right. And, and I think later on, I still follow these same principles and at least my own integrity. I don't, I'm not saying anyone else should follow that same thing. Different people have their own standards. But so far, you no, know, it's been working out for me. Everything I'm working on has been doing quite well these days. And I still like and respect myself. Now, how does integrity and wholeness apply to the framework? Or where does it fit in? Yeah, so it depends on... So doing things that have integrity is what we call desired action. And that desire could be motivated a different amount of those eight core drives. So some people, it's about epic meaning and calling core drive one. It's like either for religious or faith reasons, or like they feel like they're the chosen one to be the good guy, uh, which is not necessarily faith driven. They feel like something bigger than like, like, I want to be the good human, like a main character protagonist in this world. Therefore, I must make good choices, right? Uh, sometimes it's core drive five social influence and relatedness. So it's like people around me all expect me to be a good person or make moral choices. And therefore I do it or everyone around me makes these choices. So I do it too. Sometimes it's loss and avoidance, their fear of consequences. So, but integrity are the things that you do when no one's looking, right? There's no consequences if you don't do it. Yeah. I think the other insight too is it's not a value unless it doesn't cost you anything. So your value around integrity costs you, you know, getting that, that next wire in, but it gained you at least a lot more. Yeah. They, there's a saying that strategy is not what you choose to do, but we choose not to do, right? If you say yes to every opportunity, you have no strategy. Well, um, rounding uh, third base, I'm going to a couple of uh, rapid fire questions and then we'll wrap up. Best boss you ever had and who was it and why? I've never had a boss always self-employed. Hey, even a HTC boss? Yeah, but I was a contractor. So if you, if you can't client, client as a boss, then I have a lot of clients. How about best client, favorite client? Mm -hmm. I think the best client, at least the one that jumps out of my head, is this guy, Craig Amazine, who used to be the number three guy in the Sacramento Kings. He has a startup on getting sports celebrities to engage their audience. So he has this, he's working with Juju, the football player. So he's just a great guy to work with. He's always positive, enthusiastic. I find there's two types of clients. One is like 
emotionally like happy, excited, but not detail oriented. Like they just don't know what I'm doing and they're like, okay, good, good, just do it, just do it. And there's clients who are just really detailed. They're like scrutinizing every block on the spreadsheet. They want to understand why that is. But you know, those personal types oftentimes are just not so fun to work with, but Craig is both. So he's like always positive, high energy and understanding the process, passionate about it and throws in those ideas. And then he evangelizes to everyone. We've been working, I did the design project for him, I think like four or five years ago. And still every few months, like he's like raving about the work I do and introducing to other people that he knows. And, you know, I think it's just a pleasure to work with and his professional and he actually studies the stuff that I'm doing. That's awesome. Love that. What, what's something the world doesn't know about you, Kai, that uh, we wouldn't know if I wasn't too curious to ask? Even it could be a fun fact. I was born left-handed, but my parents corrected me to be a right-handed person to fit in society better. <laughs> and in college, I practiced writing with my head, and it turns out I have this, a, a skill that I can write uh, with both hands at the same time and different things. So when I'm taking notes, I could write two letters at the same time. It's really ugly, but... Even if I just write with one hand, it's ugly too. So I think my writing form factor in my head is just is just ugly. But eh, it's a fun thing to do. So uh, what, what what is funny about this is that I used to write a novel in Chinese, like those martial art novel combined with like Lord of the Rings fantasy stuff. And in the main character is like an archer, right? And whenever I write, he always, you know, uh, or, or my friend was reading the novel and he's like, hey, is, is everyone in your novel like left-handed? I'm like, no, what are you talking about? They're mostly right-handed. And it's like, why do they always draw the arrow from their, with their left hand and then hold the bow with their right hand? And I'm like, is that normal, right? You use your bad hand to just pull the string. It's easy. And then you use your aiming arm with your, with your good arm, right? That's normal, right? And they're like, no, no, no. Like most people pull the arrow with their right hand, which still makes no sense to me, right? Because the, I think your good arm should be the precision one, the aiming one, not the pulling arm. What a fascinating observation. I have a question. What languages do you speak? You mentioned Chinese. Um, is that right? Did I hear you say that? Yeah, I'm mostly, yeah, mostly um, English and Mandarin Chinese. Yeah, Mandarin, yeah, great. If you could magically have any band play any venue, who would it be and where? It could be a rapper, singer, artist, songwriter. It could be in the future or the past. Oh, this is, this is where I suffer. Uh, if I have a band to play in any venue, this is, this is where I'm embarrassed because especially talking to you and your, your five guitars <laughs> behind your back and I've most of my life I've been into games and business and for bands, I'm really, I'm really in, in, in the purity of the word ignorant about most bands. I end up, um, when I played Beat Saber and I, when I listen to, you know, click some music, I realize that I think songs I like, you know, when I don't know who sent them and I, and I look them up. A lot of them come from One Republic, so I guess that would be my my band of choice. Yeah, maybe maybe One Republic live in the metaverse. That'd be cool. Yeah, let me think. What would be maybe in the White House? Yeah, a White House like on the platform to the whole audience as if it was like a presidential speech. Fun. There we go. One Republic for which we stand. If our audience wanted to outreach to you, you're pretty active online. What's the best place, Twitter? Like, what's the best place to get a hold of you online? Yeah, I think Twitter is a good place. Uh, Twitter.com slash at Chow. And uh, yeah, I think that's the best place. And that for the audience, that's Y-U-K-A-I-C-H-O-U. Yep. 
And if you go to ukaichia.com, there's a form you can fill out, you know, and you can find them on LinkedIn too. You know, free to add me on LinkedIn. Uh, yeah, so pretty, pretty accessible. I think if people write me an email and they tweet me that they wrote me an email, so far that's been reliable. Yeah, just mention your friends at Curdy D and you'll get the backstage pass. Yeah. Yukai, you're a scholar and a gentleman. It's been uh, so fun to watch you just continue to blaze trails in your career and, and all the awesome stuff you do online. And you have uh, just an incredible brain and a, and a really big heart and an awesome soul. So I really appreciate our friendship and appreciate you being so generous with your time today. So thank you so much. That's like the most generous sequence of words I've heard about me. Thank you. Awesome. It's all true. Thanks again to my friend Yukai Chow for being our guest. What a fascinating episode. The guy is a learning machine. I was so inspired and I loved uh, the story about uh, how uh, he's really left-handed and more importantly, his honesty and integrity with the reward me story. That was really inspiring. I'm at Curdy D on Twitter and Instagram. Also, Kurt Tederdix on LinkedIn. Sign up to the newsletter at curdyd.com. Big thanks to our sponsor, Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of recruiting firm helping the next generation of category creators find the best talent. Go to huntclub.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. To review the show notes for this episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, and any links mentioned, visit curdyd.com. Be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts to be notified when new episodes go live. Stay tuned for more unique perspectives shaping the world on The Curdy D Show.